This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. start by saying thank you. Uh, first, you're taking time from your busy afternoon to deal with me, so it's flattering. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to thank you for something that's beyond your control, for the photo behind you, the uh-huh. little poster. Yeah, there we go. Okay, enough said. Go. I'm not going to say anything else. That's good yeah. for me. Yeah. The third thing uh, I think this might be one of the hotter days that we've had so far this year, and we're both sort of uh, dealing with it as best as yeah. we can. So yes. you're dealing with the heat and with me, so this is an honor. I appreciate yeah. it. No, thank you for having me. And I've actually wanted to talk to you for a while now about many things, and uh, I kind of I reached out to you maybe, must have been two months ago, I think. Maybe a little February. more, actually. Is it February? It was February. When, when, the, when Pete dropped out of the race. You know, it's amazing with COVID. Two months could be eight months, could be a year. I just, you're right, it was February. And yeah. you, you released sort of a, a little statement about your sort of brief experience with, with his campaign. And, and I just reached out to you. Uh, I know very little about him. I appreciated, I guess, his, uh, what I knew of him. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that he had a very sophisticated foreign policy advisory team. And I did an episode not too long ago with Adham uh, Sahlur. So I, it's kind of a, it's a privilege for me to get to sort of get to know the team. Yeah. And if you don't mind, there's many things I'd like to discuss, but let's start there. I know it's four months ago, and I know it's sort of a lot has happened in the last four months. Uh, but let's just begin there. Your experience sort of advising a, uh, a potential Democratic nominee for the White House on all things that resonate with you, with me, and I think with anyone who cares about the region, do you think that despite who, be, who, despite who takes the White House, despite whether Trump is reelected or whether Joe Biden wins, do you sense that there is potential for positive change in the immediate future when it comes to American policy in the Middle East, in particular, our part of the world? I know it's a loaded question. I know there's a lot of details there. I'm going to keep it very general. Do you yeah. sense that there's any hope for the time being vis-a-vis American and sort of the, the issues that we care about most? And I'll, let me narrow it down just a bit. Protester demands. The demands that we've seen in Lebanon, the demands that we've seen in Iraq, the demands that we've seen in Syria. These genuine aspirations for decency and, in my opinion, true democracy. So is there any hope on the horizon for you? I'm an optimist, and I, I generally trend, tend to try to see um, positive aspects of any policies that may be that we may be faced with, or that we may, whether willingly or unwillingly, find um, 
being implemented. Um, I think in the immediate term, um, whether it's protester demands in Iraq or Lebanon um, or Syria um, or elsewhere in the region, I do think it's going to take us much longer um, than expected to see um, real, stable, lasting peace, justice, those kinds of things that I think the region is really hungry for mm. and seeking after years of turmoil. Um, but I don't, and I don't just think that that is tied to what the United States' policy is uh, towards the Middle East. I think that's definitely an important part of it. I think right now, during this campaign cycle, the most critical question that I think is dominates interactions between the U.S. and the region is, is the U.S. going to withdraw from the Middle East, right. whether it's militarily or non-militarily? Um, I really think that's the biggest question. Right. Right. The Gulf is asking it. The Levant is asking it. North Africa is asking it. Um, to what extent does the U.S. still want to have anything to do with this region? And it has yet to be seen. I mean, there are different debates that you're seeing among both the classical Republicans, like Bob Gates. He put, you know, he put yes. forth an argument last week in Foreign Affairs, um, where he said, you know, he argued that the U.S. is overutilizing its military capabilities, and it's really a time to look at what other tools does the U.S. have in its arsenal. Um, to impact the kind of change or to, you know, uh, push for the kinds of changes that it wants the region to take ownership of over the longer term. Um, and then you have others like Daniel Benayim and Jake Sullivan, also, you know, well-known characters on the Democratic side, who, you know, are arguing that, um, you know, in some instances, less might be more and that, you know, that stable um, stability in the region um, cannot just, um, you know, can't can't just be brought about through uh, U.S. presence and military presence and all that. So it's similar arguments, but but they're they're approaching it slightly differently. Um, but I think I think the reason I say that I don't think anything's going to come about in the immediate term um, is because I think that the the, the ailments that the region is suffering from are really deeply rooted. They are beyond the physical presence of Bashar al-Assad. They're beyond, you know, Hezbollah's presence in Lebanon. They're beyond, um, you know, the, the 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 popular mobilization forces in Iraq or, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Or it's, it's beyond any one entity, and it's really about the identity of the region. You know, I'm glad you said that. And actually, that's a great segue into what I wanted to address with you, which is okay. the domestic concerns uh, and whether or not that has anything to do with American policy. And I'll, I'll frame this question better. Uh, we've seen ongoing protests and it's not just 2019, 2020. We've seen the region trying to change, at least when it comes to population's aspirations, at least for a decade now. In the case of Lebanon, it's been a re repeated attempt going back to 2005, and there's been ongoing demands for some form of accountability. And there may be divergent views on what that actually means, but let's just assume that these are domestic calls for change. Is there any room for American policy to perhaps 
I don't want to I don't want to sound conspiratorial here, not sort of sort of puppeteering any movement, but actually be on the right side of history and not let the aspirations take a back seat to perhaps the familiar terrain, which is security despite the malignancy of certain regimes and, and certain substate groups or whatever. And I agree with you. I agree. It's not about one person or it's not about one group. Uh, it's an ongoing problem that stems back before these people were around or visible. And it will probably persist beyond their, beyond their sort of lifespan. So I mean, can, can American policy play a positive role in any shape or form, at least when it comes to the domestic aspirations, or is it unrelated altogether? That it shouldn't matter what Americans think or don't think about the region, it's what the people want. And that's, what, that's, that's, where, the, that's where the success story should be. Well, I mean, listen, um, I, I try to think about these both from a purely, you know, uh, American that might not have any idea of what the region's about, like right. looking at it from that perspective, as well as someone who was born there, still has ties there, um, but did leave. And so I, but, but is in tune for many reasons, including the fact that I study the region. Right. Um, so I, 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 I'd like to think that I have some indicators or some idea of what people in the region are asking for. You can't ask the American public to invest their taxpayer dollars right. in right. the region um, and not be concerned about what their money is being is funding. I mean, for example, for Syria, uh, taxpayer dollars, $18.5 billion to be exact, funds humanitarian aid out of Damascus. That's right now one of the, the issues of debate is like, how does the U.S. want to spend that taxpayer dollars? And the problem is you're dealing with a domestic population that right now is dealing with everything but foreign policy. I mean, there's really yes. no space in the debates. Um, and the, the, the actual presidential debates haven't even started, but there's no real space, I think, right now to discuss too much in the foreign policy sphere. Mm. COVID and, you know, Black Lives Matter and racism and freedom of speech and those kinds of things are absolutely dominating the scene. And right. rightfully so. I mean, these are important. This is a time where, you know, there's that phrase where it's like leave space like there, there, there has to be space made to address these two things that are really vital for America's health, both literally and figuratively. Right. Um, but that being said, there are, there are a couple of issues on the foreign policy front that have somehow see managed to seep in um, to American psyche during this tumultuous time, China being one of them. The yes. president has right. ensured that it remains on the agenda. Um, Iran. Yeah. Uh, and sanctions, and as an extension of that, Syria sanctions have come up uh, yes. to the you know to the to the front lines. Um, but aside from that, you know, Russia on occasion comes in, usually for misinformation, disinformation campaign reasons. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, Americans are pretty self-centered right now, and you know, and they're very concerned about how much money we have and what we're spending it on. But I, li um, I like that you've pointed at potential positivity in that. That there's that because they are in a way there is a, the story of accountability here. It's a very different story altogether. Of course, but there, but there are chance for change in in America. I think the domestic issues that America is grappling with are overdue. They're long mm. overdue. Yeah. Um, 
you know, even the issue of single payer health care and ensuring like in a time like this in a pandemic that Americans have access to minimum level of health care that doesn't endanger society. Like we're a civilized, you know, we're, we're a population where we have the greatest economy in the world. Um, over time, I've heard many people say, and, and you know, Pete himself was of a, you know, he had sort of the, the mixed healthcare payer system yes. idea. I generally, you know, I'm a proponent of that. I think the pandemic though made us realize that like, why, why can we not ensure basic healthcare for all Americans? Um, and why is our money being spent as overseas when we have a very real issue with it here? So I, of course I share these concerns. I mean, as an American, I think they're absolutely important. Um, the issue of, you know, systemic racism is something that I think even someone like me, and I'd like to consider myself relatively well-read and have been exposed to this most of my life. Um, I remember even as an immigrant child, my mom, like one of the first series my mom ever made us watch was Roots. Like it was something <laughs> my mom, my mom did a very good job. You've dated, you've dated both of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, as as an immigrant woman, um, First of all, she, you know, she she made sure that we knew a lot about the Native Americans and a lot about African Americans because we were in the Midwest, we were in Kansas, um, and my and so we had a Native American, substantial Native American population, and my mom had always had real, you know, she she had, you know concerned herself also with the issue of racism in America. And I, I actually don't know how she became interested in it, but I, all I know is that she planted that in us as her children. And um, so it's something that I've been exposed to and aware of, but I can't say I know enough about now with regard to police brutality right. or these issues that have now come to the surface. Right. And, you know, I'm someone who I, I like to acknowledge when I don't know about something, finding the solutions to this are beyond my capabilities. Um, but I think that there's enough that most Americans can agree on. Yes. Like a minimum base of things that they can agree on to move things forward. I am a little bit concerned about both the far left and the far right flanks and them dominating the conversation in an unhealthy way. And honestly, that's one of the scariest things for me because in an election cycle that can be weaponized, um, and it can be misused and, I don't think we need any more polarization. But I'll ask you just one more question about the, let's say, the Buttigieg campaign and your involvement. Did you did you sense that there was a eagerness to maybe, and I, I hope I'm saying this right, maybe maybe correct certain decisions when it comes to policy towards Syria, or was it sort of like a, a it wasn't a priority, so to speak, that because of the reasons you're saying, which, which I mean, and I know it's pre-COVID. And I know that sort of it feels like a different era now, but but still that it, and I, I agree with your your the way you're describing it and portraying it, just a general reluctance to get to to be even let's say curious at this point about what's happening in the Middle East. But did you sense that it was a priority, or is it really just doesn't matter who wins at the end of the day that, in a way in a way the protester demands there are like the protester demands here that those, the answers will lie within not by sort of design or strategy or anything like that. So I think there are similarities in protester demands um, in the sense of like accountability, a representative government, uh, justice mechanisms that are responsive. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, you know, I, I don't, 
I don't think it's fair to compare what we have in Syria to what we have in the United States. Of course, of course, yeah. With no no disrespect to the real problems of racism in the United States, we do have a democracy here. Um, We do have um, an independent Supreme Court, which really has showed up the past couple of weeks, as you've seen, um, surprising liberals and and conservatives alike. Um, We have a Congress... Um, that is also, um, you know, we've seen the past couple of days, yesterday, I think there were a couple of upsets. I think Engel lost the primary and he's been in Congress for, I think, over 30 years. Yes, right. Um, but, you know, there, so there, there is a functioning democracy, but it is imperfect. And, mm-hmm. and as loyal Americans, it is our job to continue um, yeah. to push for, uh, for a more perfect union, frankly. Um, I think with Syria, of course, you have you have more complications. Um, there are many more complications, starting from the top and trickling all the way to the entire culture of governance. Sure. But but I do coming back to the Buttigieg question. I do think there is a difference in terms of who leads and and what that leader prioritizes. Um, I think, you know, uh, President Obama made it very clear where his priorities were. They were, you know, time primarily two things. It was the Obama health care and the Iran deal, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and, and, and he, you know, moved forward and ensured that those two things would get done during his presidency at all costs. Um, I worked on the Hillary campaign yes. um, and you know, with with the the Hillary campaign um, as a volunteer um, on the Middle East team, you know uh, there was there was an emphasis on Syria because because Secretary Clinton did spend a lot of time working on on that, um, and so she kind of reshifted some of the priorities. And I know I know there was a lot of attention paid to. Um, you know, developing possible proposals that would have been would have been implemented. Um, I think with Pete, and I have to say that I had friends who worked on other campaigns. Um, are, are they still are they still Pete, friends, or did you? Uh, did you uh-huh. No, they're still friends. No, just, yeah. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all Democrats, so like. So, we so may Steve, have, Steve Bannon. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, at least you know. So I have several friends who worked on the Warren campaign, yes. who worked on um, Castro's campaign, who worked on the Sanders campaign. I yeah. mean, you know, we. There were. I'm not going to say there were never any radical differences because there were some. Um, but when you have like when you're united, sort of as a, on a you know, to defeat you know one particular candidate, Donald sure. Trump, you can yeah. find more to sort of hopefully more to dis- to agree on than to disagree on. But I I will tell you this. I really enjoyed working um, with Mayor Pete's campaign for two reasons. One, I think his youth. Yeah. Um, is. It was so refreshing because the kinds of people that volunteered for his campaign, and I'm not saying this really to, to, to compliment me or Edham, but it was nice to work with, um, like people who were like, you know, normally behind the scenes, like they didn't like Pete, Mayor Pete managed to bring out people who maybe had never even thought of working on campaigns before. It was really interesting. Um, there were fresh ideas. There wasn't this like, the second, the second thing is that there wasn't this rigid, rigid hierarchy yes, between right, Mayor Pete right. and everyone else. Yeah. I didn't ever work directly with Mayor Pete during this process, but there was more of an egalitarian system, like because he's not that much older than us, you know. Like 
a lot of his yeah. friends are actually my, you know, a lot of people that he was, um, you know, that he did like programs with and stuff. I mean, we were both part of the Truman National Security Project, for example. We're both members right. of that. So we have people in the same circles. And so it's interesting to see that, you know, it's like you can see yourself growing with the candidate. It's, you know, and and so there was like this kind of energy and enthusiasm because he was really an unconventional candidate, I think, on many levels. Um you know, he was, you know, um, exceptional in terms of like, you know, um, his background and not just because yes. he's Maltese and his name is Arabi, but like, you know, Abu Dajaj, but like, you know, for, for a variety of other things, most importantly of which was his like, you know, um, his experience as a mayor and, and, and his, the demographic that he came from. And Absolutely. I think those things, um, they highlighted him as a young candidate. And I really saw this, um, you know, I, I saw Mayor Pete, the first time I saw Mayor Pete was um, at the DNC. I went to the DNC convention in Atlanta where he ran um, to be head of the DNC against Tom Perez. And he did a very strategic move where he ran to be president and then he withdrew. Um, but he, get, he delivered a speech and that was the first time I ever heard him speak because I was like, who's this guy? I've never even heard sure. of him. I've never yeah. seen him. Um, and he delivered an amazing speech. And I looked at it. I looked at him. I remember at the time and being like, "This guy's going to become president of the U.S." <laughs> like he's really impressive. Like one thing's for sure, and I'm sure you, you're. I mean, you you would know this more than anyone that. Yeah. His, I mean, his. There's a very good chance he will run again. I don't think. Oh his yeah, career, of course. Yeah, and I yeah. and that's why I look. That's how I see the campaign was. It yeah. was like really the beginning of his serious political career, right. um, and definitely not the end. Uh, but so, you know, yeah. I, I kind of like that you've you've kind of in a way separated the issue of reform and and revolution, and I like that you reminded, and this is a very important reminder, that yes, the 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 chance here for change are legitimate and they're and they're just. But yeah. there is a system that you can hold to account. Yeah. And if anything, the, the, the calls are not on maybe some on sort of fringe sides of the debate want absolute fundamental revolution in, in the U.S. But, but the main sort of the main calls for change are more on reform, fixing the problem yeah. and accepting the system as something that can be fixed. Whereas at least in our neighborhood in, in the Middle East, it, it seems to be the chance are not for reform. The chance are sure. for overthrowing sure. the, the the problems that we've been dealing that with. Change. Yeah. So I like that there is a kind of separation of genuine chance for reform and genuine chance for revolution. And also in that story, uh, you you uh, you pointed at a few things, and I, I'm glad you brought them up. First, that we're both old enough to remember <laughs> roots. <laughs> Second, yeah. and and you know, I was I did a deep dive into your story and I've sort of been watching a lot of interviews and it's funny like everybody I've interviewed on the podcast is usually with you in some panel debate I'm like of course it's like you know everybody that I know <laughs> so there's so much overlap and that you actually did volunteer with the Hillary Clinton campaign it was with the Syria working group if I'm not mistaken I hope I got that yes. right yes. yes and we had sort of an exchange and we talked about the importance of women today in yes. the Middle East and I did not know. I read an article by you, and I thought it was a more recent piece. It was a Brookings piece. Merka's Brookings piece from 2015. Oh, yeah, that's a bit older. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I sort of was like, oh, this, this could have been written today. Could have been written sort of any any moment during the Arab Spring protests. And it yeah. resonates even more today. Changing assumptions about women in the Middle East. And it's I like that you remind the audience that women did not just show up during the Arab Spring. Women have been front and center, and that, that's, a, that's an important reminder. Sure. From your side, 
somebody who's been, I hope I can consider you an Arab woman in this conversation. And I think yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that do you sense that that kind of momentum that we've seen recently, not going back to 2015, but sure. the last year, particularly in Lebanon, that kind of outward display where you have women leading marches, women demanding things that are, are, are just and then they should have happened already, that it seems to be a, a, fem, a feminist moment in Lebanon. Is that, is that romanticizing what we're seeing in Lebanon or is it real that there is a, a shift, at least in social attitudes when it comes to women's rule, and I mean it in particular in political change? Because I, I know that you are absolutely right. In terms of economic stability, women have been part of the story from the beginning. But in, but in visible politics, at least when it comes to the regime, they have not been front and center. They have not been as visible. That seems to have some, there is potential there, at least in Lebanon, from the way I've seen it in the last few months. Is it, is it too simplistic or is there a real change happening? No, I and I don't think it just applies to women in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, um, I'm Syrian-American, so I have more exposure, I think, to the Syrian women, Syrian and Syrian-American women. Um, but, but I've heard you speak about Lebanon too many times. Hence, I can now consider you an expert on Lebanese affairs. No, I would not. Absolutely not. But I do have dear friends who are Lebanese yeah. and or... And you, you have know, a, a dear dear photo behind you, hence... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yes, uh, um, you know, her among many others who have taught me a lot about Lebanon. And I've, I've had the chance to go there. Um, not enough, I would say, to to hail myself as an expert by any means, but enough to at least observe. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I've actually forgotten I wrote that piece for bookings. <laughs> it's been a while since I read it. So I, I, I hope what I said was, uh, I, I'm assuming it still stands true today. But really, I mean, um, absolutely. you know, both of my grandmothers were illiterate. Yes. Um, and I don't, you know, but but both of them went on to raise children who were very literate. Um, you know, my father's a professor. Both of his brothers are doctors. My aunts and uncles all have education. So I, um, my mother studied law in Syria. So, you know, I think there was a dramatic shift um, sort of in, 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 in access to education in a very short time frame in the Middle East. Um, and, and I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Right. Um, and it makes me sad that, that those trends may be reversed now in Syria due to the refugee crisis of children being, you know, disenfranchised from education for 10 years, some of them. So I'm not right. going to go in, right. I'm not going to go along that path, but I mean, it's important to remember how critical, um, you know, and, and, and where Syria was and where Syria is today. It's, sure. it's quite yes. depressing. But um, I, I watched both of my grandma, illiterate grandmothers really encourage the education and success of all of their children, um, and which I have in turn benefited from as, as their granddaughter. Um, and, you know, to see how strong they were in advocating for their families, in raising their families, in providing for their families. Like I only have one living grandparent, my grandmother, uh, Mahmoud, the one who I put a picture of her in yes. that. And I, I love I you. Just, the, the way she's shouting at a checkpoint, yeah. at a, like, it's so vivid. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's yes, real strength. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And she and but the picture I put of her, I think, in that in that Brookings piece um, was of her standing in Turkey, the one and only time she, right. she ever yeah. went to Turkey. Yeah. Um, and I was with her. And, you know, I um, 
you know, she, she, she taught me that strength is not confined solely to what you learn from books. And, you know, um, but that if you can have access to education, it makes you an, an even, you know, uh, it gives you more tools at your disposal. Let's put it that way. If you right. know how to use them. Yeah. Um, and my father, you know, my father also played a critical role in addition to my mother, but my father, especially as a professor, he's someone who has really, um, encouraged me and all of my sisters. I have three sisters. I have another, you know, a sister in medical school, a sister who's also doing her PhD and a sister who is in education and has worked in Yemen and Bangladesh and many other places. Um, and, and I have brothers, but what I'm trying to say is my, my dad, made sure to never treat, there's no disparity between me and my brothers in education. Um, and he doesn't see a difference. And in fact, yeah. you know, he always tells me like, you know, we, my dad and I started our nonprofit together, Syria Relief and Development. And sometimes he'll joke and say, I wish I could just hire like just women because they always get everything done so quickly, so fast. And they're just, you know, and he's seen that like, you know, I mean, not to, not to disrespect any of our male colleagues because my dad, you know, my dad loves all of them, but you know, he did, you know, he does pay attention to how, like if given, if we are given space that we can do a lot more than just what's expected out of us or what people assume Arab women are capable of. And I think that's, you know, I, I think that's what I see I, like in Syria and, and in Lebanon is that coming back to your question is that, you know, I think, and I even see this in the United States, you know, that women, it's not like all that they want is that people don't crowd them out of the space. Like if you just leave them, if you just give them space the way you would give any other human being, they will fill that space up with useful knowledge, information, activity. Um, you know, they are as much, if not more so, um, you know, diligent and, and able to provide a different perspective. I mean, that's why we you know, uh, I was reading something last week about diversity since, you know, racism and diversity has come to the forefront in the United States. And it's like companies who have more diverse boards, companies who have more diverse staff end up doing better. They end up right. making more profit because you're looking at things from a variety of different angles. And, and that's important for peacemaking. It's important for negotiations. You know, I'm also on the UN constitutional committee for Syria. And, you know, the, the Gear Peterson, Envoy Gear Peterson has managed to put 30% women, which was the in you know, 29%, but it's about, it almost hits the 30% quota that the UN aimed to do. And, you know, without going into any of a political position about the makeup of the constitution, that's a, that's a conversation for a different time. But there are some really outstanding women on there that I've met. Women who are judges who fled, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda from Syria and went on to, you know, that, that were, that were really pillars in their 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 um, their country, but then fled and still made an imprint where they left. Um, I've seen women who are frontline journalists, um, you know, women who are you know several female lawyers, and and I I think they're not asking for special treatment. They just want you not to crowd them out of the public space but that's I, I, available. And share the sentiment fully, but but in terms of bringing that bringing those aspirations, sure. To, and and letting them be home homegrown, where where this where this sort of is, it, it it's permanent and it it's, it resonates. Do, yeah. do you see that happening there? Because I I know that it's 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 it is so healthy. And what you're saying, I mean, they they, they I I mean I'm not a woman, but I I know what you're talking about. And it's yes, you don't want to crowd them out of the conversation. 
And I sense that at least in Lebanon, and you can maybe, I mean, if there's other experiences you think resonate as well, where the women were not, they were not accepting any of that. It's like, sure. no, 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 no. Sort of like, <laughs> you get out of the way this time. Sure. We're going to speak our mind. Sure. Do you see that as translating into, and I'll use the term political, political yeah. change in that part of the world? So that it's not a UN sort of administered quota. Sure. Or it's not even a, an individual family making those choices. I mean, listen, I, I, um, I recently wrote a piece um, on, uh, for an academic journal on the need to codify women's quotas in the Syrian constitution, mm -hmm. um, in, in an organic Syrian constitution. And the reason I make this argument is because, unfortunately, in, 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 the, in the Middle East, you have oftentimes laws that are not blind to gender. And, right. and so you right. have already from the outset like, for example, you have Syrian law that treats adultery as a crime differently for men than for women. There are different evidentiary standards for the crime, which is it baffles the mind that that that, that and that's actually, believe it or not, that is actually remnants of the French uh, from French law oh, wow. um, to see that. Yeah. I mean, most people think it's 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 Islamic law or Sharia. No, it actually came from the French, which oh. is a different conversation. But all of this is to say that even on the books. The laws do not treat men and women equally. It is not blind to gender. And so women are already at a disadvantage going in, even just if you just put them in exactly the same game and don't change any of the rules, they're already behind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so think about it then, if you compound that problem with insufficient number of women that are allowed to play this game, or with women who are you know, required to have the blessing of their brother or their father or don't have the financial capability to run a campaign on their own. Um, you do need an extra push. And I do agree that it doesn't have to be the UN. Um, but Syrian women, by the way, are demanding in and of themselves this quota in their own constitution. And I think that's something that can translate across the region. Right. Um, it, it, it needs to be done at all levels of government. Um, you know, in the judiciary, we need to see more women because a lot of times, I mean, they've been in positions where, you know, um, judges that are applying Sharia have actually, you know, only had the male in front of them and have decided a case with only one party in front of them because he's the male. Like any other court. Does he, does he, does he ever lose? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, that's what I'm saying. So that any other court um, would have at least seen both parties. Sure, so you'll sure. find some of these discrepancies that happen, not just in Sharia courts, like I said, in a variety of different, um, you know, uh, forums. And so I think what's important is to do our best, and, 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 and I think that Lebanese women are conscious of this. I mean, Syrian women are most definitely conscious of this. Egyptian, you know, Egyptians just recently put a 25% quota in their constitution. It, it's, it was also, it's very controversial how that was put in the constitution. There were a lot of different political um, calculations that put it in the constitution, but in and of itself, it was intended separately. There were, you know, Egyptian feminist groups that said, you know, we je we technically agree with this. We just don't like this being, you know, pushed along with many other reforms, supposed reforms, um, but, but, in the Egyptian context. But there is an advantage to quotas in that sense. That that, that should be a starting point, regardless yes. of anything. That that is an important basic component. Sure. Okay. You know, I uh, I mean, this terrain I, I'm not too familiar with, but I, I'm. It's good to hear that debate happening there because I think yeah. that that is the kind of I mean it's about 
It's about re restructuring, in a way, social pacts across the Middle East. And I think that is one part of it, woman's sure. place in society. Sure. So that's, I hope that that kind of, that impact is is permanent. And I hope it lasts, to politi it turns into political change because it's long overdue. Yeah. But I'm going to, yeah, sorry, please go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, because, you know, one of the most critical issues that most women in the region have is their ability to pass on citizenship to their children. Yeah to their husbands. And that's a problem I know Lebanese women have, Syrian women have, women throughout the region have. And so if you don't have enough women at the negotiating table when constitutional reforms are happening, yeah. when parliament is taking a decision, those critical things that are very outright, outrightly discriminatory, they, they can't but they can't make any, you know. But I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up and I'm going to pick your brain on this. It seems to be a popular cause where most people would support that woman passing down the nationality and it, it seems like no matter how much noise is made it just doesn't happen i mean i think that's something that you know societies i can't i don't think it's for an outside player to demand sure. those kinds yeah, yeah. of expectations out of society but i do think that that will be an essential part of the evolution of the region um, into a place that is comfortable with both it's uh, majority religions, it's minority religions, that there are adequate uh, protections right. and, and yeah. citizenship is extended, equal citizenship is extended equally across the board to men, to women, to different ethnicities, different religions, um, and, you know, different demographics in every sense of the word. Uh, I think that is what, when we get to that phase, we know we are on the track to making real progress. Right. Uh, I'm going to now just ask you because it's something that's very, very recent and it's impacting Lebanon and Syria. And it happens to also, it, 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 America is playing a role in, the, in at least in the background and sometimes up front. Sure. Uh, the, the economic pain that is now shared in, in yeah. Lebanon and Syria, the lira yeah. hyperinflation in both countries, uh, the economic collapse of Lebanon and what looks like Maybe half the population is now in poverty and hunger is a real possibility. It's already started in certain areas. And Syria, there's that familiar sort of, it's, I mean, it's, it's been war ravaged. But recently also the lira hyperinflation and it's, you have in the background sanctions that are being implemented. And I, I'm curious from your side, is this the... I'll say it carefully. Is this a productive way of forget, forget regime change, forget all of that? Let's assume that's not going to happen, at least in the near future. And let's say it's beyond America's uh, decision-making capabilities right now. Yeah. Regime behavior. Do you see this as a necessary step to encourage a different type of behavior from the regime? Or, or... Is it something that is perhaps too costly for the most vulnerable in both countries right now? I think that it pains me to see where Syria is today um, in terms of its physical destruction, in terms of its brain drain, in terms of watching, you know, millions of Syrian children, like I said, disenfranchised from schooling yes. and, and people disenfranchised from their homes and the missing, um, and, and not to say anything about the number of dead 
as a result of 10 years of warfare. Um, and it pains me that we, that the regime that is, that, you know, that initially people went out for has really barely budged an inch on any issue. Um, you know, I know when, when we first started the Constitutional Committee, one of the things that UN Envoy Peterson was trying to work on was the release of child prisoners. I'm talking about child prisoners. And I think they're in the range of like 500 or 600, around that amount of children who are imprisoned in Assad prisons. He couldn't even get the regime to concede their release. And I, you know, I think anyone who tells you they know for a fact what Russia and the regime are going to do in this scenario doesn't know. Um, I think that has yet to be seen. So you mean between Russia and the Syrian regime and their relationship or in their yes. response? And, and kinds of pragmatic, practical concessions they're willing right, to make right. at this point. Yeah. Um, now that Caesar sanctions have gone into effect. Um, I don't know what there will be. I can tell you what many Syrians would love to see. Um, a willingness of the regime to say, okay, fine, fine. Like, let us try and, and, and we'll start taking some of these productive steps. I mean, we can't even meet for a, a basic minimum meeting in Geneva with, with the regime side. And so, you know, I'm not sure if this type of pressure will extract that from the regime. I don't know. I would love to say it will. Mm. Um, but I think that the, the, the kinds of examples we've had in the past of sanctions, they're not, they're not homogenous. I mean, they're, they're, each one has a different um, history to it. You know, those yeah. who studied South Africa will tell you that it was mostly the local domestic businesses and their strikes that brought about the downfall of the South African regime. Um, Iraq was obviously led by the United States, sure. um, and yeah. it was full and total sanctions that ended up killing half a million children. Yes. Um, now, now America has learned a lesson from that, both Democrats and Republicans, and that you know these sanctions are not—they're um, not you know blanket sanctions. There are very real exemptions for humanitarian aid, food, medicine. Um, you know, but there are things, for example, like diesel that is on the list yes. of sanctioned products. And this is going to impact the energy that Syrians have access to. Um, will there be some exemptions made? It's not clear yet. Um, for example, for solar energy or other things like, will there, will, are we going to see in the next several months, and this is something that we talk to policymakers about, are we going to see some exemptions that allow to widen that, um, that space of what would be considered humanitarian aid, given the fact that these sanctions are going to, for sure, have reverberations um, that touch on the lives of everyday Syrians. It would be dishonest to say that they don't or that they won't. Um, but this doesn't, I just want to make sure it's clear that none of us have revisionist history. Like the reason we are here today, the reason for Syria's destruction is not Caesar. It is not Western sanctions. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it is. It is a very stubborn power that refuses to allow for any room for civilized negotiation. But then, in, in case let let's say we go with the scenario that, that it doesn't yeah. yield much or it doesn't yield anything. Let's say there's no change in, in behavior. Are there any political tools left where you can actually encourage behavioral change? Forget regime change. Sure. Just that uh, that uh, there, so that if the country is to be rebuilt, it's not rebuilt where you have a sort of familiar story, and that the same sort of 
monstrous like situation persists for the rest of our lifetime? And I, I, I know it's a, it's a naive sort of question in a sense because I'm, I'm curious what's left. It's sort of been, every other tool has been exhausted and it's not sort of yielded change. Or, um, or is it that not all tools have been used properly, that there are tools that have been left uh, out? I mean, listen, I don't think Syria is ever going to go back to what it ever was, even if mm. Assad stays for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. I don't think you're going to see, I don't think Syria will be stable under him for the rest of his tenure. I don't, I don't imagine that happening. I think there are the other political tools that governments are using, which is diplomatic isolation will continue. It happened before. Um, you know, Syria was not friends with the United States, um, you know, even before the, the uprising happened. I don't, you know, and, and uh, you know, according to what we know of U.S. policy, of course, things can change, is that, you know, the United States is not going to, you know, dignify the Syrian regime with full diplomatic, um, you know, uh, uh, acknowledgement, and nor will it encourage any of its allies to do so. Um, you also have the tool of accountability. And I think this is actually mm -hmm. a very important mm -hmm. tool. Um, just two days ago, a Syrian doctor who had tortured people inside of Syrian regime prisons was caught in Germany. Yes, I saw. Yeah. Now, yeah. now will stand trial. Right. Um, and you already have been following the other trials in Germany, the, the trials that have been filed yes. by Syrian women yes. for sexual abuse right. inside of prisons, um, and as well as um, some of the other Anwar Islan, et cetera, like some of the other um, trials that have now become popular. And I think at minimum, as an international community, like when I when I see when I see those trials coming, and I think a lot of us who, especially as a lawyer, like, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, assassinations or, um, you know, death penalty. Um, but when you see when you see accountability and someone being held to the law, like, I don't know what Holocaust survivors felt like when they saw, you know, some accountability for some of the the criminals that had brought about you know, their, their, their pun, you know, their, their suffering. Um, but you know, there was, there was a part of me that was, that smiled to see that there was a doctor who's caught like that. There is that, yes, let's at least make it at minimum, very difficult for any of Assad's associates to ever live a normal life again. That if you partook in carrying out war crimes, if you tortured people inside of prisons, you should not be able to live a comfortable life outside of Syria. And there will be Syrians who will collect evidence and go after you in order to make sure that they have their day in court and their grievances are heard and you are held to account. And I think that is something that the U.S. is investing in. Europe is obviously playing a major role in. Yeah. Um, and I think we will continue to see more of in the years to come. You know, you've actually taken me back to the late 90s, where you have, I mean, it's obviously it's a violent episode in former Yugoslavia. Yeah. And then you have a second Balkan war, Serbia, Kosovo. And then you see the population, the Serbian population, in a way, yeah. imprisoning their leader, Milosevic. Exactly. Sending yeah, exactly. him to The Hague. You have paramilitary groups. You have paramilitary leaders. Uh, Karadzic and Mladic went up in mm -hmm. The Hague as well. And mm -hmm. they, I mean, Karadzic commits suicide in The Hague. Milosevic dies in jail. Is that the kind of accountability that you're talking about? Where, where you have a sort of an unwillingness to tolerate anyone who committed mass murder in the Syrian story to live a happy life? 
whether they're in Syria or abroad. International justice, and the, I mean, I don't want to sound cliche here, but, but really that they, that they are being chased down and, and, and trial, tried and thrown in jail. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, and I think you're right, and I think oftentimes people forget that Milosevic actually signed the peace agreement, and he didn't, <laughs> he wasn't like dragged off into prison right away, right? Like he yeah. was, he was, he signed it as a, you know, co-signee of the peace agreement of Dayton, and he stayed in his place, and then he was later removed and yeah. tried. Five years um, later, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. He, he wasn't done immediately. Um, and I think... I think what you said is key, is that for people who committed mass crimes in prison, yes, um, or, or in the torture or in fighting the Syrian people, um, people who use chemical weapons on Syrians, um, I think it's going to be critical in holding them to account. Um, you know, I think there's different models for dealing with much lesser crimes. And I honestly, I think, you know, Rwanda, you know, they had like, I think a million um, little mini trials yes. of, you know, to, in order to address the very local grievances that were not like the mass grievances of people or, right, or right. major crimes took place. And I think that's very much going to have to be a locally owned and facilitated process, um, probably with some assistance from the international community. But, you know, what is forgivable and not forgivable is, is, is not my, my judgment to make it's but, going but, to be but locally do you actually i mean is there a way to imagine that happening in in syria in our lifetime where, where these kinds of trials happen and and this this regime is in a way it's, it's surviving somehow it's still around i don't see it happening I mean, while it's impossible. the impossible yeah there. i mean it's it's for me it's fiction it's almost uh yeah. Yeah. Of course, I know, I know. But but people in you know Yugoslavia also never thought that Milosevic would stand trial. So well, all I'm saying yeah. is that yeah, yeah. you know this does depend on a series of factors. But if we do, if we are able to hold to it, like at this point in time, the most we can do is try the regime's associates that have fled outside of Syria. Right. So so the international community is absolutely going to do what it can. And they don't have that protection make- anymore. And yeah, right, right. I mean, they just, you, you want to commit mass crimes and crimes against humanity. You can stay inside of Syria if you want to keep your life. Um, but the moment you step foot outside of Syria, um, I think there will be other repercussions. Um, and this is all assuming that the international community doesn't do anything further to effectuate change inside of Syria and that, you know, Russia and the regime itself also concede nothing. Like if assuming the status quo stays the same, then we may for now be confined to seeking justice outside of Syria's borders. I'm going to just wrap it up with your thoughts on one thing that I've seen happening, and I thought it's sort of a, this is, it speaks to the moment, I think, the kind sure. of world we're living in. Uh, George Floyd is killed in Minneapolis, yeah. and yeah. America is outraged, and you see persisting protests, even right now. I mean, New York is one of those cities where it's just, it became a very visible story. Then America wants something better. It didn't stay in Minneapolis. It didn't stay in America. You go to Idlib and you see on a broken, war-torn wall, a mural of George Irving. Now, that to me is fascinating. And I think that's a story in itself. And this didn't happen a year later or five. It's happened within days. Maybe maybe one or two days after the sort of protests took off. So that kind of connectivity, where you have people that are suffering in Syria war-torn country, able to share that pain 
with yeah. Americans protesting across America. Sure. I mean, is, is that a, is there anything there where you can actually see positive change in the connectivity of the moment? Meaning, meaning that it doesn't matter where you are today. It doesn't matter how much pain you've suffered or for that matter, it doesn't necessarily mean what kind of government you live under. That if you're, if you're chanting for your freedom and you want change and you want a dignified future, you have an audience and you have a global audience. It's not something that we read about in texts years later. And you know what? And it's going back to the 1980s, 1990s. It's not something you read about in the newspaper the following day or two days later. It's something yeah. you experience as it's happening. Yeah. And you can share it instantly. Sure. Well, it gets even better. I mean, there's nothing sort of more ironic than someone in Idlib sending you messages asking you if you're okay because COVID in the United States is more out of control than it is in Syria, right? Like, I mean, that's when you, you're just... You have dumb- no right to complain then. <laughs> I know, like dumbfounded because you're just like, it's true, COVID is widespread here and I can't believe someone in Syria is inquiring about my yeah. health. But I've spent <laughs> several years talking about their health sure. and the destruction of their healthcare systems. Um, but that speaks to it. Know, it's actually very important detail that yeah. even they care about your situation. Of here. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, uh, you know, listen, I think what the Arab Spring showed us is that the world is a very interconnected space. And I think that's part of what spurred, you mm. know, this, mm. the Arab Spring and what continues to spur it. Like, I'll give you a great example. I was talking to someone in Sweden. There were recently protests in Sweden that were not just calling for food. They had the Khalina Naish movement in, um, or Badna Naish uh, that happened in January. Yes. But now the protests in Sweden are calling for regime change. And so I was talking to someone in Sweden and I'm like, Yani, you haven't learned like that. Like, are, are they seriously calling for this given everything they've seen the rest of Syria go through? And you know, the, the gentleman from Sweda told me like, listen, like the, 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 gov- the people of Sweda, most of them, most of the people even younger than my age and, and, and above have all fled yeah. um, Sweda and are living overseas and are still very connected to their families. And they are like, so the people in Sweda are very interconnected with the outside world. And right, you see right. the same dynamic in Idlib is that now people in Idlib um, and uh, Aleppo countryside, they definitely weren't this connected to the outside world before. Right. Um, you know, Syria itself was not this connected to the to the outside world before. There were some things, but I mean, the government tried its best to really isolate Syria uh, culturally, um, you know, uh, the market trade-wise, etc. Like, it made efforts to to keep Syria under its firm grip. And so now... With the chaos of the uprising, you have people connecting with with folks I would have never met. I, I never went to Idlib before before the uprising. Like I literally never went, and and so it, this, the irony of it all is that despite all the destruction and tearing people apart, you have also brought people in the region together. Many of my Lebanese right, friends, I have right. become friends with them after after the Syrian uprising, after, you know, the movements in Lebanon. Like, we found things to bond over, to, uh, you know, there is there is a language of understanding um, that we now communicate with and that we, you know, 
Um, it started in Egypt, and then it had rippling effects across the region. But and I like the, the shared grievances that you've kind of you've just described, where it doesn't matter where you live anymore. The geography is less relevant to the actual issue itself. Of course, but of course. Do, of do course. you see that there, that regimes are in a way more vulnerable as a result, that they're not able Absolutely. to isolate the problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Pandora's box has been opened. Yeah. And 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 people can't go back to living in. Um, I think in the way that was that they used to live before. Right, it's right. very hard, um, you know. Once you've had a taste of what life is like, where you can speak your mind, you can criticize the president, you can, you know, you can write an op-ed, you can write whatever you want on Facebook, um, you can make phone calls and joke with your friends about silly things in politics. Um, I think it's really hard to go. I mean, I've tried to put myself in situations in countries, um, not put myself, but I've had to, for example, um, without naming any specific countries, but when, when I had to travel for work, I've, I was in countries that were much more um, uh, repressive in terms of freedom of speech um, and association and those kinds of things. And I feel incredibly stifled. I, it's not, uh, it's it's really hard to to force a human being to go back to that, even if they were familiar with it before, even if the concept itself used to be second nature. Um, you know, I think, I think that kind of liberty, once you have it is really, I mean, it's really hard to give up. It's really hard to give up. You know, I think if there's any hope in the future, it's in this issue. Uh, the last few days, few weeks, at least in, in, in Lebanon, you have uh, citizens protesting online. They share yeah. their grievances online. It could yeah. be something very unsophisticated. It could be just a, a tantrum on Instagram. Sure. They get arrested. Or they get detained, interrogated. Exactly. But it doesn't stop there. Sure. Thousands of people show up at the interrogation at the police station. They demand and, their release. And within hours, you have a release. Which is, yeah. I mean, and it's not, see, the thing, it's not just an Instagram sh- uh, sharing story. It's not just retweets. It's people seeing that, rushing to defend the person and ideally the person leaves sometimes you have on you have a kindle khatib which is a recent story in lebanon being interrogated still detained but people are are expressing their outrage and they're questioning all the reasons she's been taken in that in itself is important and and also that you can't remove this once it's shared it's permanent yeah. i mean that that uh, story whether it's in idlib or whether it's in beirut whether it's in cairo or anywhere once it's online, it's accessible to the world. And that's yeah. something regimes don't have control over. They simply can't control that. So I, I think there is hope in that. And I hope, I really hope that we don't sort of spend the later years of our lives still trying to navigate the very difficult terrain that we're too familiar with. I would like to see a better future for the entire region. And we're still young enough you mentioned this earlier, and it's important. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is also at the age that we're in. Yeah, he's yeah. not. He's not young, where that he will become in sort of a fiery, uh, revolutionary protester sure. with a bandana and a you know fireworks uh, in his backpack. Yeah. He's also not too old, where he's outdated and jaded, and maybe in a way unfit to to serve. He's actually in that sweet spot, and I think we're in that sweet spot. We know the dangers of the past. We're not too reckless at the same time. We want we want change that's permanent and productive. I hope that we live long enough to see a better Lebanon and a better Syria. 
I hope so too. My bet I is that so we will. But anyway, that's uh, I don't know. I don't want to. Hope so I know yeah. we don't want to jinx it. I think right. there's just been too much heartache that yes. it's hard. Absolutely, it's hard to hope for the best now. And but. thank you for agreeing to have Pete Buttigieg on the next episode. That's very kind of you. And uh, no, I'm <laughs> I wish I could deliver him for you. You don't have I that. Think he's d- deliver him for me. Yeah, yeah. Actually, he could <laughs> literally. I, it would be the second ep- interview. Deliver an interview. Oh, I thought Amazon delivery. He shows up, and I can finally <laughs> human interaction during COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that there's definitely a lot of people, I've met a lot of people of our generation who are um, really rethinking, um, both in the region and the United States, rethinking, you know, someone, I'll put it this way, someone I was speaking to today, a foreign policy expert uh, that I see as a mentor told me, I don't know what things are going to look like in the future, but I do know that the next four years will look nothing like the past 40 years that we've seen before. That's how much of a change um, I think um, may come from America um, in the region. And um, I hope that that four years that lies ahead um, allows room for creativity and innovation in how the U.S. approaches the region, a better understanding. And I hope at the same time that the region itself is given space yeah. to um, to take ownership of its destiny in the way it deserves. But I but I also hope that the issues, the really deeper issues of identity and direction and citizenship, um, that there's space to discuss them, yes. to think about them, and that and that there's really new intellectual ideas um, um, and and thought given um, to how. Like, what does it mean to be Lebanese? What does it mean to be Syrian? What does it mean to be an Arab? Um, I think, I think, I don't think we necessarily know anymore. So I, I hope that there's space to redefine uh, those things. Couldn't have said it better. Jumana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for dealing with the heat, the humidity, <laughs> and for me, dealing with me. I took more than an hour of your time. So I yeah. really appreciate it. Thank you. No, of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.